So uh, you'll see by your handout the direction that I want to go today. This is part two of three parts on evangelism. Um, last week was looking at ourselves. Uh, this week is thinking more about the theology of evangelism or um, uh, you'll see there I've got systematic considerations um, on what is probably page the, the second page of your handout um, or the right hand side. Uh, and the idea here is just to think about evangelism within the uh, wider framework of the Bible um, of, in terms of what God's doing, um, our involvement in that mission, and then when we think about some things that God has told us about himself, about ourselves, about humans, um, and about the church, etc., that those things will help give shape to how we think about evangelism. So let's start here thinking about um, the first heading I have there, God's program, God on mission. And so the big idea here is uh, just to start out by reminding ourselves that um, God is God has a plan. Um, God is on mission, and He has a plan to uh, magnify Himself, gather people to Himself, um, and so so the world is not just kind of uh, going around in circles, as it were. Um, it's actually moving somewhere, and it's moving in uh, the direction of God's purposes. Um, and so the first one, uh, then you can just see I've got a few bullet points there, and we'll just go through those bullet points, um, and I'll put a couple of texts to them, and you can kind of jot notes down, um, or whatever you like. Yeah, you've got text here. So, um, God's program, God on mission. First point there is that God has planned a victory. Um, a couple of places to go for this are, for example, Psalm 46, verse 10. Um, we read there, the psalmist says in, the, in that song, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 46, 10. Uh, the Lord has said, I will be exalted among the nations. That is what God's going to do. Uh, a similar idea we have in Isaiah chapter 2, there at the beginning, um, where um, Isaiah talks about a day that the Lord has against all that's proud and lofty, and it will all be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Or Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, um, you get that statement, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The idea here is that God has a victory planned over the whole earth in which he will be exalted. That, so we, we, we get that in, in our minds uh, clear. God is on a mission. He has a plan and that's what he's going to do. Secondly, the end... Second point, bullet point, the end has come and is coming. <clears throat> so in terms of that mission, in one sense the end has come. An example here is 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 18, where he says, Children, it is the last hour. 
And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. So presently, where we live, is the last hour. This is the final moments of God's plan. Uh, Hebrews um, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Again, the idea that we're in the last days. That's the time frame that we're in, in terms of God's plan. Um, and then 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, Peter says he exhorts the people, his readers, by saying the end of all things is at hand. So the end has come, we're in the final hour, and that end is at hand, is near. So, and then he says, therefore be sober and alert for the sake of your prayers. The point here, for this second bullet point, is that the first thing we do is we see God has a plan of victory, and then as we see the time that we're in, that ramps up the urgency of the period that we're in. If we, if we feel that properly, that this is the last, these are the last days. Third bullet point, there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. Now as Christians we know this. Um, we've, we hear it regularly. But I just bring it up again because it, it brings weight to this topic of evangelism. Uh, an example text is Matthew 24, verse 31 to 46. It's the well-known parable of the sheep and the goats. And I'll just read the, the beginning and the end. The context is like this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You know, did you see there? All the nations gather, separate the people one from another like sheep and goats. Um, and we know how this uh, parable continues and ends. And then he says at the end, and these, that is, he's working with the second group now, um, the goats, they will go away to eternal, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so that's just a reminder there that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, and there will be eternal punishment and eternal on one hand and eternal life on the other hand. So as we're moving through, we're thinking about God having a plan of victory. The end has come and is coming. And that there's going to be these two, you know, quite serious and remarkable outcomes. Now, the um, fourth bullet point there is that so in this period, right now, where we live, God is gathering the Gentiles in. That's what he's doing. Um, an example is Romans 11, verse 25. Paul says, he's talking about how the, the, the Israel, Israel has been partially hardened, and the Gentiles have been grafted into the family of God. And he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers, 
a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And Paul's talking about time there, what God's doing in his plan of redemption. Another text could be uh, John 10 verse 16, where Jesus is telling um, his disciples that he's the, the good shepherd, and he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. <coughs> so we could also add to that, if you want to make, if you're making notes, you could add the idea of harvest. Um, in Matthew 9, uh, Jesus is talking about pray to the Lord of the harvest, that image of the harvest being that that's the period we're in, and also the image um, in Luke 14 about the banquet people being invited to the banquet and going to the highways and the byways to invite anybody in to the banquet. And that's what's happening right now in this period of time. And although it has been a long stretch of time, uh, 2 Peter, which we're studying in the mornings, uh, in chapter 3, verse 15, says to us, he encourages them, you know, because they're waiting so long, and he says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's what is happening right now. The patience of the Lord in this long period of time after the resurrection of Jesus is because of salvation. He desires all people to be saved. That's God's program. God's on mission. That's what he's doing. That's what he will do. Now, we'll just quickly look at the church's program and then we'll have uh, a little time of questions. So, <clears throat> moving on to the church's program, how do we fit into that picture then? Three key texts. John chapter 20, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says to the disciples, so I send you. That's one of the key texts when we're thinking about the mission of the church. Uh, in similar fashion, Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, therefore go and make disciples, is again a well-known text uh, we're familiar with, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and behold, I am with you till the end of the age. <clears throat> um, and then Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and he says to the disciples, wait here in Jerusalem. Because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So those are three key texts in terms of the church's mission. And one of the things that we can kind of, we need to grasp when we think about these three, three texts, two in particular, Matthew 28 and Acts 1.8, is that um, well, for all of them, they're written to the, the uh, said to the apostles, at least the apostles, potentially the disciples, as representative of the church. And so the commission is given not just to the apostles, but to the church. And a clue for this is that in Matthew 28, he says, Behold, I am with you till the end of the age something that the apostles themselves didn't do. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says that the Spirit has come upon you and you'll be witnesses to the ends of the earth. A 
again, something that the apostles themselves didn't do. Sure, we could say they got to Rome and that was kind of the ends of the earth. Um, but the idea at the end of uh, the book of Acts is that what's left is that there's speech from Paul and it's as though the word is still going out and pushing on. And the point of Acts is not to say job done, but to say uh, job still to do. So that's, that's key there because it's a, that, that, that mission is given to the body of Christ. So that mission is given to us. And that is our program within God's program. Okay, I'm going to press pause there. And we'll just have a little um, time of feedback, questions, thoughts, just a couple of minutes. And if you're just happy to keep going, we'll keep going. Just good to see the uh, explanation of why it's a commission to the church, not just to the apostles. Mm. You know, because you hear people say that and not explain. Mm. But it's helpful to have explained, isn't it? I mean, we could add just, I mean, from the, the second one, Acts 1 verse 8, that the, the Holy Spirit coming upon them uh, as a key dimension to the Holy Spirit's ministry is that of being a witness and having boldness for that witness. Um, and you see that ongoing as well, for example, in, I think it's Thessalonians, where the church um, receives um, joy of the Holy Spirit to endure it. To endure the suffering in the midst of their persecution, and presumably that is them being a witness, um, and the Holy Spirit continuing to do His work. So, I mean, we've just done the sessions on the Holy Spirit, but this is key part of His role for us is to make us witnesses. Any any other points or thoughts? And a small question off the back of that. There will be a resurrection of the, of the righteous and the unrighteous, which was in, in John 6 uh, 54. It says, sorry, yeah, John 6 54 says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. As though it's significant that this person will be raised up at the last day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so it must mean something other than just they will be raised because everyone's going to. Mm-hmm. So what, what's going on there? You know, it, sorry if that's too if that's, uh, yes. off, if that's off topic, but uh, I think probably just for the sake of the focus tonight, I'll give a short answer. Um, I think it's just simply that um, in some parts of scripture, the focus is on the individual, um, the focus is on the person who is a believer being raised and having eternal life. Um, and then in other parts of scripture, we kind of, um, camera zooms out of it and we see, oh, that's actually a, that, that, um, uh, that more specific raising up of the individual believer is a part of a wider picture which would be the resurrection of both the, um, uh, the saved and lost. Yeah. And chapter five of John, if you want to go back to that, would be a place to, um, see, uh, that at work. Where he's just spoken about the resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. That's John 5 25 to 29. Um, 
Okay. I'll keep going then. Um, so, now, that, that you, what I've done here is, you see, I've, I'm, I'm zooming in to the individual, starting kind of with God, zooming into the church, and now going into the individual commands. As we kind of think about ourselves within that, I realised that I jumped right in last week, um, and I think what had happened, we'll see when we get down to applying the program, we will talk a bit about how what I have done, and I think that might help clarify things from last week. Um, but first, think about individual commands. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 to 6, um, uh, actually, let me put it this way. I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where we are given um, a direct imperative uh, of the, with using the verb um, to evangelize. So, you know, written to the church, for example, it could very easily have been in any letter that one of the apostles just said, um, preach the word to the individuals. He obviously says it to Timothy, um, and, and when we listen in, but he doesn't kind of give that command direct to a church. And, and, and I'm up for talking about this afterwards. Um, it just kind of, the reason why I bring it up is because I'm trying to think about how we individually ought to feel what sort of weight and how we ought to feel the responsibility for this mission ourselves, you see, and I'm seeking to apply precisely the way that Scripture applies it to us so that we feel it rightly. Um, and so I can't see any direct commands using that verb in an imperative, evangelize, or preach the gospel, or something even that would be conceptually the same. However, this is what I do see, and so I, I'll, I'll walk through a few of these verses. I do see the idea of everybody being exhorted towards intentionality and wisdom. This is Colossians 4, verse 5 to 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Right? You see that? There's a kind of intentionality there. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, a couple of things there. Notice how he doesn't directly give the command, evangelize, but he gets, the, he gets us to have that intentionality, to be ready, to know the time, to have wisdom, to, to, to have our speech be gracious. He kind of like, he goes so close to saying evangelize without saying evangelize. Um, and then he even says that you, know, you may know how you ought to answer each person, you see? Almost as though you don't, it's almost like he doesn't tell them to solicit Right? Now, I'm not, not um, uh, speaking against the idea of initiating conversations, but I'm just saying that he doesn't, he just doesn't quite push it over to that point. There's this readiness to answer. Um, so, so my second bullet point there, I have again the idea of readiness in 1 Peter 3.16. Again, a common verse that we know, but in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You see? There's a readiness and there's a godly life and an expectation that you will, but not that direct command. Um, 
And so I don't, I don't know. I mean, you, you know, you guys tell me what you think, but I think that somehow just, I don't know if it changes the dynamics slightly for how we think about evangelism. Um, certainly we should have this readiness to be answering an intentionality, that desire to speak to others about Jesus. Um, I've just got a couple of other things here. Uh, godliness, um, that we are told to live in such a way that's so honourable that um, people, if they speak against us as evildoers, they would see our good deeds and glorify God on our visitation. That we would live such good lives that people would be saved, essentially. Um, and then I've, I've mentioned suffering um, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, because uh, it says there, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And the idea there being that um, we are told to, um, part of following Jesus is to take up our cross, and so part of the Christian life is that we, that we suffer, and the reason I bring that up is because I think that that's one of the reasons why we hold back from evangelising, perhaps, um, as I mentioned last week, I think it's certainly one of the reasons I do, but just, we are called to suffer, there is a sense in which that is how we witness to Christ. Um, and we honour him. Obviously, we don't go looking for it, but we need to have that, we need to make a resolve within ourselves that that's a part of the, of the life that we've chosen to follow. Um, and, that, and that will shape how we go about our evangelism, because it will shape how we, we think and what, what we think normal Christian life is like. Okay, so I'm just going to go now into applying the program. And that's just to think now about how we then take um, these, this, um, this word to the church and these individual commands and apply them to ourselves. So I've got here method. Have you got method, method, method? Is that right? Um, so what I mean here when I say method, here are the contours act appropriately within this program, is I think, I guess where I am at the moment is that what scripture does is rather than giving us each individually that imperative, what it does is it says, take all the stuff that I've just said, right? Here are all the contours. Take all these things into consideration. Consider God, what he's doing in the world. Consider uh, his mission at the moment, what he's really about. Consider the outcome uh, for those who believe and those who don't. Consider the urgency of the time, knowing that the end is here, that the, day, that the, um, the end is near. Consider that as a church, you've been given this task, and you're a part of the church. Um, consider that as an individual, you've been exhorted towards intentionality, you've been told to love your neighbour as yourself. And then it kind of goes like this. How do, you, how do you think would be a good way to act within that paradigm? You see? You see how that kind of comes to you? And I think what that does is it, 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 it's, in some ways, it's a drawing you into evangelism. You see? It's almost a let the scripture win your heart and you get convinced of how you think would be the right way to act within that framework. 
if you are believing these things. Second method, point here for method, is that, um, oh yeah, I've got, I've got to repeat there, no direct commands, but rather strong examples. So there, the strong examples is the bit I'll just focus on, is that we get, you know, Paul kind of puts himself over and over again, you know, even in that section in Colossians, he says, he doesn't say to them evangelize, he says, you guys act really wisely to an outsider, be ready, ready, right? And then he says, and pray for me that, that a door would be opened and that I'd be able to speak the word with boldness, right? <laughs> he kind of like, he, he, he's like, hey, let me tell you all the contours. And then just be like, this is what I'm doing, you know? <laughs> and, and then like, here, here's a whole book about, you know, acts, like, here's a whole book on acts, on what we did. Just kind of leave it there, right? He gets excited, he tells them all about the workers that are, you know, working with him. Jesus even himself, when it, you know, that verse, um, pray for works in the harvest field. Notice how he doesn't say, go to work in the harvest field. He says, he's like, it, 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 do you understand what I'm saying? How it's, a, it, it's, an, it's an interesting way to do it. It's like, hey, why don't we pray for workers for the harvest field? You know, I wonder who's going to go. <laughs> um, it just creates a different, it comes to us, I think, in a different way, the force of the call. Or, and I think maybe it's because of that sensitivity and, and different, I don't know. As a body, we, this is the third point of method. As a body, we make a variety of contributions to the whole program of disciple making. And I think we have to say that. Um, that there is the category of worker within the kingdom. Paul can say that. He can say these are the only fellow Jews um, um, uh, workers among the Jews of my uh, group. Or something like that. I can't remember exactly the phrase. Um, but we all are involved in different ways somehow within that framework of making disciples. So that's applying the program. I have their witness as a helpful category, but I won't talk about that um, now. All right, I'll press pause there again and open up the floor to questions, thoughts. Yeah, I think there's a strong flavour which I think is come from what you say and I think is fair, certainly strong, very strong in some of the passages that you shared that actually it's really clear that what we're talking about is a spiritual undertaking. So right from the start, the mission is God's mission. Mm. God is the one um, gathering the Gentiles in. Mm. Um, you can look at one earth has been given to me, therefore go, I'm sending you. This is my mission, is Jesus, it's mm-hmm. God. Um, but then, interestingly, you look at something like Colossians 4, you know, devote yourselves to prayer. Pray for me too, that I might be, you know, that I would speak clearly when I have opportunity. Um, but then again, really interestingly, a lot of the focus is actually on conduct. So, on, so Colossians 4, well, actually, about conversation, verse 5, be wise on the act of outside. Make the most of every opportunity. And it goes on to talk about conversation, but not, not explicitly about. Evangelizing, let your conversation always be full of salt, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer. Everyone. So, actually, 
gracious conversation that then leads to opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking just as you're talking about, about, about Matthew 5, I'm thinking, are we, said, are we told to let our light shine? Mm-hmm. But interestingly, 5.16 says that they may see your good deeds. Um, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And kind of that flowing from the early part of Matthew 5 that's so much about conduct and very different conduct from, from what we might see elsewhere. So it's, I, I think, yeah, that, I don't know, I'm not sure how much that's, that's adding, but it's just interesting that it's really clear. And I think that's something we need, that's a really, really helpful starting point for us, whether we consider ourselves evangelists or not, whether we love the idea of speaking about Jesus or whether it petrifies us, our starting point is that this is not our mission, it's God's mission. Um, and it's a spiritual undertaking, so our starting point is prayer. It's not, okay, what's my strategy? I've been given this task to do. The task starts with prayer. That's Colossians 4, it's, it's Matthew 9. Um, so interesting, not to say that we shouldn't think about ourselves as evangelists and think about opportunities, but it is, a lot of it seems to be, well, it's, it's spiritual, but it also seems to be quite reactive to the way that it's often our, what the, our focus seems to be often individually mm-hmm. about being reactive, about actually the way that we live and leading to opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's right on the basis of Colossians 4 for us to ask for opportunities for ourselves I think that's implied that that's a really good thing on the basis of what Paul said, both himself as an example, but then also you know, the hope that you might um, maybe have to answer everyone you want the chance to be able to speak. So, sorry, that's a bit of a waffle, but. Um, yeah, that's good. We'll, we'll um, next week, that would be a good thing to bring, bring up again as we think about method. Um, is yeah, these these things feed into obviously you know they they work together you know our, our method is informed by our theology and that's exactly right that's, that that that's exactly the thing it's God's mission um, that encourages us and gives us you know great hope um, and we stand for it yeah and then go down any thoughts on kind of the gift of or role of an evangelist. So in like Ephesians 4, part of our danger is I think we can read ourselves into acts of example. Look what he did. Well, I'm going to go and preach to these people now. Yeah. And for most of us, that's probably not a legitimate application. But any thoughts on that sort of yeah. gift? I don't know. Yeah, my, I think with, in terms of the gift, um, <clears throat> I guess first thing to say is I'm not entirely sure what an evangelist is. Um, if I had to land somewhere, probably somebody who goes and evangelises. Um, um, and uh, the reason I say not entirely sure is because we can take a, we can then go and adopt an idea of what that might look like based on our experience of what we've seen of so-called evangelists. Um, so my, my guess is that it, an evangelist is probably somebody who falls into the same category as, a, as the kind of gospel worker category. You know how Paul used things like, say, a fellow soldier, a 
fellow worker. He uses that language in the ends of his letters sometimes. I think that those overlapping themes, so people like Priscilla and Aquila might be called, Paul, I imagine, might be able to say, they're gospel workers, they're evangelists, they're fellow soldiers, they're gospel preachers, they're, they're gospel workers. And so that just means that it might not look necessarily like somebody who just walks around, um, yeah, just just doing uh, specific, uh, exclusively outward itinerant, um, itinerant type um, ministry, going around just preaching at various places or whatever. But, but that 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 said, um, I think we can also think about the fact, um, in terms of gifts, that it's seems natural that there will be people who, within the body, the same as other gifts, who will be um, better equipped and more inclined towards um, evangelizing unbelievers. Um, and that's a fine and good thing, and they can encourage us as a body, and we can perhaps as a body work with them. Um, I guess I'd say that that probably doesn't preclude um, us from, I suppose, fear. I, 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 I'm taking the same program, applying the program. It doesn't preclude us from taking those contours and saying, act appropriately within the program. Um, in the same way that there are some people who have the gift of mercy, but that doesn't preclude all of us from having mercy. Kind of, somebody had that gift, and that's great that they did it, but that's not for me. So we kind of perhaps we have it in varying degrees in that way. Um, yeah, I suppose I would, and, and I think the last thing to say is that because I know my own heart and the fears that I have in evangelism, I'm taking that into consideration when I think about the contours and apply this program to my own life, which makes me say, I know my own tendency, and my tendency will be to say, it would be great if we had an evangelist at MRC, they can do that. And I can feel like I can kind of convince myself that I have weighed up all of these features and, 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 have, and have kind of with a good heart concluded I, I'm walking in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Um, and, 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 that, and as I say, I think that's just me. Um, and so as you, you see, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm going, very, I'm going as close but not totally the same um, yeah, any other thoughts? kind of that I was wondering if you could just kind of unpack maybe a bit more of a sort of numerical variety of contributions. I think that, again, I know my own mom, I great, so I don't have to be an evangelist. I'll just like support all the other people in the church, and like they can do it. And my, my job is to kind of look after the fellow Christians and they think. And yeah, I think again, Ephesians list of Christ gave this, this, and this. And people, oh, I'll, I'll do that one. Yeah. Don't want to do the evangelism. Uh, yeah, you kind of already said it a lot in terms of some people in particular get that doesn't preclude us from. Yeah, what? Yeah, what were you meaning more on the sort of when we make a variety of contributions? Yeah. Um, I guess just first thing is, I'm just thinking now about that list in Ephesians, 
even with the pastor-teacher idea, again, there is the unique positions of pastors and teachers, but likewise, that doesn't rule us out from kind of teaching one another in a kind of sub uh, different kind of level, or pastoring slash kind of caring for one another at, a, at another level. Um, and so I guess I would say, yeah, because I know my own past, um, and aware of the way that I, you know, have I got consistency upon those things? How do I feel about that kind of, that pastoral element? Do I think, oh no, we've got pastors, we don't, I don't need to counsel anybody or kind of have a kind of pastoral posture as best as I can towards those around me. Um, or or endeavour to kind of teach fellow believers who are, you know, younger in the faith or whatever. I think, again, we would probably want to um, have that there. Uh, but what I mean by the body working together is, I mean, I guess things like, you know, some of us will you know, put on a party um, and one person might be good at hospitality and another person perhaps is just better at explaining things um, and perhaps a little bit more outgoing and a bit more confident. Um, and so they, you know, you have a party and you bring your unbelieving friends along and you bring your believing friends along and you get talking and you've kind of been involved in that, you know, you You've invited these people, you've done the work of hosting the party, and that's contributing to that whole thing. Um, and again, as we care for one another and look after one another, we are um, working together as a body to um, show that Christ dwells among us. Uh, like Jesus said, you know, you've done no, they'll know that um, the Father sent me by your love for one another. Um, so that's what I mean. I think I just mean with everybody doing their little bits. Um, but if we have all these factors, this, um, the, these contours, we let them bear on our hearts. It will be pushing us in that direction. But how that actually looks for each individual might be slightly different. You might be inviting somebody to the church, but not actually doing the speaking. And Dan, you know, God's gifted Dan to to speak, and so he'll speak and. You know, they were saved, and then, and then afterwards they'll come to the church lunch or whatever it might be. And somebody who's really compassionate, uh, or you know, something like this, will will sit and listen to them talk about something, and and, and this kind of network of things happening will, is what God will use to draw them to Himself. Last one, I think, and then we'll move forward. Language program here. Interesting and a bit oh. tricky in some ways. Okay, yeah. I didn't actually think through it too much. Yeah. This is probably not what you're offering, but the sort of the program of disciple making has really noted qualifications for me of sort of problematized strategy of evangelism. Mm. Um, and so I can really see where the theme of the program comes, but throw it out there that it bristles me a little bit to use mm. that language um, because I think I've had negative experiences before with a, quite a narrow problematization of what evangelism should look like. Um, but I think you probably aren't offering that if you are. <laughs> From what you've been saying, um, yeah, maybe story would, uh, would help me a little bit. I, I sympathise with you, I know what you mean, um, and next week as we think about method, I'll, I guess, a preview to, I guess, a summarise of what I'll say then is, um, 
I think it's a both and. And yeah, I guess with on in terms of language program, I didn't think through it. I just I, I mean I just kind of put it in. I wanted to have some kind of idea of saying plan, mission, yeah. something like this. Um, and I think the kind of two extremes are to be so, you know, some churches it can feel almost like, um, and I can, I can sympathise with this, with, this, with this effort, that count every head. And so they'll say, you know, we, um, we care about numbers because God cares about numbers because every single person matters. And, you know, this would be the argument or whatever. And so it would be very structured, very planned, very deliberate effort to do every single thing possible to get every single person. And, and I agree that it can, uh, when you're in that system, it can feel as a bit like people become units rather than people. Um, and they become a means to another end and not uh, almost an end in themselves. But that individual um, is a precious life and not just uh, another number to add to our, our program so that we um, can say that we've done a great job. And I think that's a, I think that's a, a real uh, um, danger that we have to be aware of and keep having it flagged up that we don't get that mindset. And I think on the other side can be that we um, either in reaction to that or because, um, yeah, just a nervousness generally about um, maybe even human effort, uh, or something like this, we can say, we can kind of almost just go, the Lord adds the, adds the growth, we focus on loving. Um, and I think that lack of intentionality has it has a converse problem when we look at the numbers and kind of say, well, actually, it would actually be really loving, you know, to make a plan to somehow save some people. Um, because God has given us the role of doing that. And so... Yeah, I think so. In between that space, how can we do that? Not, not, and, and on both sides, recognise the errors or the dangers. Let me quickly go through this system, a couple of these systematic considerations um, with our last <coughs> ten minutes. Right. So systematic considerations. We're probably not going to get through these now. And here I was thinking that I trimmed it right down to sixteen hundred words in my notes, and it was going to be. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to trim it down to a thousand next time. Right. So the first, um, uh, you'll see I've changed colour and the idea was that it's each category. So in the category of thinking about our doctrine of God, we know that God is sovereign in salvation. A text, Acts 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And you perhaps have heard the argument before. It doesn't say, and as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God, the point here is God is sovereign in salvation. How does that systematic consideration shape our attitude to or our, our thinking towards evangelism? Three things I can think of. One, it alleviates the pressure from us. And there's a sense in which that's a good thing. Um, there's a sense in which it's good for us to not feel the burden of salvation as being something that is primarily and ultimately in our hands. Secondly, it gives us confidence, I think, 
because it gives us confidence in his power. It actually means that nobody is outside of God's reach. Um, just seeing you guys here and just thinking about how, good, how, how great a story it was, hearing Tom and Ellie, um, and how Tom became a believer, and just such a testament to the power of God to save Tom and to save us. So it gives us confidence, I think. And that's the, the right way I think we should take that doctrine. And uh, thirdly, I think it changes the way we present the gospel. Um, because it's alleviated the pressure from us, because it's given us confidence in God and in his power to save, I think it means that we can, it gives us confidence to present the gospel in its fullness and not shy away from various things, thinking that would be impossible to, un- to believe, that would be impossible to grasp. Um, yeah, I think it changes the way we speak, we argue, because we, and we present, because we, we've been humbled by God's grace toward us, and so when we speak to others, we speak with a kind of humility um, and a kind of rest in God's power for him to save. That's the first thing. The second uh, thing, considering God, is that God himself, he desires the lost to be saved. We read that twice in the, in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we read that. God desires all people to be saved. And we read that in um, 2 Peter. And that can be coupled with the first point that I have there um, about humans, that they are loved by God. That's what we know about human beings. They're made in God's image, and they're loved by God. In Matthew 9, uh, verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He had compassion for the crowds. You know, God desires the lost to be saved. Human beings are his creatures that he made in his image, and he loves them and desires them to be saved. And I think what that does, three ways again that that um, affects our evangelism, is it challenges our apathy um, towards a lost world. Because we see God really loves these people such that he sent his son to die for them. Secondly, it encourages us because we know we're on God's side when we're doing this. You know, we can kind of feel a little bit despairing as we're, you know, are we whipping up this idea? You know, are we coming up with this idea of people being saved? No, God really wants people saved. And thirdly, it challenges our biases and pushes us towards diversity as we think about God loving all people. Not just some certain people, but all people. And when you put these two things together, all people, God's love for people and God's sovereignty, you get to see, actually, we should think that nobody's beyond his reach. And there's nobody that we could not talk to about Jesus. And in a diverse culture, um, city like we're in, that's really helpful for us to think about. All the people all around us, God loves them all, and because God is sovereign, nothing is impossible. Um, okay, now the second point about humans, and I'll move pretty quick now. Humans are irrational. <laughs> okay, Hum- I- I'm not going to go through Bible verses. I'm just going to say these things, and then you can come and say to me afterwards. I just, you know, we can talk about whether or not you- you've got a problem with that. Humans are irrational. The Bible teaches us that. That's what sin does. It's affected our minds. Uh, how that changes, that can go coupled together with belief being a moral issue. 
Um, you clearly see belief being a moral issue where the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the fear of the Lord. It's the posture of the heart that's the beginning of knowledge. Um, or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. So humans are irrational, and belief is a moral issue, not just an intellectual one. And the way that that changes our evangelism, when we know that, right? This is what we know about humans, this is what we know about the effect of sin on humans. It changes how we do evangelism because we, we can easily run down many roads convincing people of all the rational reasons why Christianity is rational. Now, there are two extremes here. One is we spend all our time trying to convince people from a kind of you know, of all the reasons why Christianity is right, and then at the other end of the extreme is a very simple um, just believe, just believe, just believe, just believe. Um, stop thinking at all, right? Um, but I think if we if we take um, the, the next point that I have about humans there is humans still being reasoning, and Paul is an example of that, Jesus is an example that he reasons with people. We take all these three things together, irrational humans, belief being a moral issue, but reasoning still being um, uh, an ability within humans, it means that actually our evangelism has got a, it, it holds this space between saying, no, we can argue, we can debate, there is value in that, that's good, um, but at the same time, we're aware that actually people are just going to be inconsistent and irrational, and that, um, and that their unbelief might not be that we have failed to present the truth to them, but that they don't want the truth. Um, and you can think through a few more, you know, just, um, there's lots more that can be said about um, those three points. But as we think about human beings and the effect of sin in our hearts, distorting but not completely destroying the image of God in us. Um, when we think about ourselves, we think about ourselves as being imperfect, right? Sanctification. The doctrine of sanctification comes in and affects how we think about evangelism because we realise we're works in progress. So we're just not going to do it perfectly all the time. We're not going to have our lives not going to be perfect in the church, our witness is not going to be perfect, our knowledge is not going to be perfect, our presentations are not going to be perfect. All of that's growing. And so that helps us when we think about evangelism because we think we realise we can keep doing it and we don't have to wait until we've got it all figured out before we start. We're always going to be on that process of sanctification. Um, and God works through those broken vessels. Um, when we think about the doctrine of justification, that comes in and affects our evangelism because we realise, actually, how good or bad I'm doing at this is not the thing that increases or decreases um, the status that I have with God as a dearly loved child and a justified sinner. Um, so justification comes in as a comfort day after day, night after night for our failed efforts at evangelism. Um, uh, and again, I've, I've mentioned ourselves there as, as suffering in the Christian life. As we embrace that, that changes our evangelism because we are, we are courageous and we don't feel that it's like, oh no. What it means is that when we have a crack at evangel evangelism and it results in suffering, we don't have to walk away thinking, oh no, this has been a complete disaster and everything is now upturned. We can actually say, now that's a normal part of the Christian life. We should expect that. Um, and this hasn't necessarily been a failure there for 
Um, the next I have here is the Spirit, and then we've already spoken about this, so I'll just move on. Um, that's just the doctrine of the Spirit's key role in, in making us witnesses and bold boldness. Um, I've got the church there, two points on the church. Oh, we've spoken about the body working together, and we've spoken about our love for one another just a little bit, and we'll talk more about that next week. Um, uh, and uh, we won't do the offer, which is eternal life in God's kingdom, the warning. Those are two, that's kind of, that's thinking about eschatology, you know, the end times and how that would shape our evangelism. We've already thought about that, I think. Um, and finally, just thinking about who Jesus is uh, for our evangelism. I think this ramps up the urgency. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Um, and we'll, we'll end here and then we'll have a little bit of space for questions or final comments. Um, is that salvation is by Christ alone. And it is absolutely necessary that it is Christ alone. There is no salvation outside of Christ. Let me read that verse. That's Acts chapter 4, verse 2. Sorry, verse 12, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way to salvation. And so when we think about who he is, we think about the urgency of the situation that people know about Jesus. There are many people you can think, and they're all around us here, they're not going to be saved if they don't know about the person Jesus and trust in him. But on the flip side, the statement says this, that the reality is that salvation is actually found. Salvation is found. It's found in no one else. But it is found. And so the beauty is that in Jesus is definite and 100% and secure salvation. That's the end of our time. Let's just spend a minute um, in prayer. Um, pray as you feel wet.